Hello everyone and Happy New Year. I've been gone a little while, but uh, now I'm back, so uh, let's get to it. The following is a list of competitions as well as workshops that will be taking place in 2015 throughout North America. Saturday, the 24th of January, the Pittsburgh Kettlebell Classic at Instinct Fitness in Bridgeville, Pennsylvania. Saturday, the 7th of February, the West Coast Classic at the Ice Chamber in San Francisco will double as the AKA IUKL Northwest Regionals. There are 95 people confirmed on Facebook uh, to go to this event, so it should be a good one. Saturday, the 28th of February, the California Open Kettlebell Sport Championship at Innovative Results in Orange County, California. Friday, the 6th of March, the IUKL AKA World Cup at the Arnold Classic um, which more specifically will, will be held at the Greater Columbus Convention Center. There are 112 people confirmed on Facebook to go to this event. Uh, in addition to the World Cup, um, on the same day, Friday, uh, they'll be holding an IUKL International Judge Seminar. Uh, and this seminar will give you an opportunity to become an IUKL International Judge. The seminar will be held by a Chief Kettlebell Judge judge in the Russian Federation. After a one-day seminar, you'll have a practical test at the IUKL World Cup in Columbus, Ohio, um, and that will include you following a judge on one of two days of the competitions. On Friday, the 13th of March, there will be a three-day Level 3 Russian Gear Voice Sport Institute Kettlebell Seminar at being held at John's Gym in Anderson Mill, Texas. Uh, this seminar is an advanced seminar uh, and is going to be used for the average to high level athletes um, taking part in competitions who just want to correct mistakes in their technique uh, as well as um, pick up some tips on uh, how to train correctly. On Saturday, the 18th of April, the first annual Michigan Iron Bell Challenge at Great Lakes Strength and Conditioning in Auburn Hills, Michigan. Saturday, the 18th of April, Punch Kettlebell Sport Championship at Punch Gym, Sarasota, in Sarasota, Florida. On Saturday, the 11th of April, the 2015 Texas Kettlebell Sport Classic will be held in Anderson Mill, Texas. On Saturday, the 2nd of May, the New York Open Kettlebell Championship will be held at CrossFit LIC in Long Island, New York. There are 64 people confirmed on Facebook to go to this event. On the following day, on Sunday, the IKSFA will hold a level two two-day kettlebell training camp, uh, and that will be located at the same facility, which is CrossFit LIC in Long Island, New York. The uh, training camp is a, like I said, two-day, 16-hour uh, kettlebell training camp presented by the International Kettlebell Sport and Fitness, Fitness Academy. It'll be conducted by Sergei Rudnev of Russia. He's a, a Master of Sport International class, and uh, honored coach of Russia, as well as a five-time world champion. Uh, it will also be conducted by Lorna Clydman of the USA. She's an IKSFA master coach, as well as a master of sport international class and a three-time world champion, uh, as well as just an overall top USA female athlete and educator. Um, just as a side note, this course will be limited to 21 people, so if you're interested, make sure that you sign up right away. On Saturday, the 30th of May, the 2015 Southeast Regionals 
uh, will be held at Advanced Training Concepts in Charlotte, New York. Uh, sorry, Charlotte, North Carolina, on Saturday, the sixth of June. The IUKL, aka Southwest Regionals, will be held at the Austin Convention Center in Austin, Texas. On the same day, uh, Saturday, the 6th of June, the 2015 IKFF Chicago Kettlebell Classic will be held at the Donald E. Stevens Convention Center in Rosemont, Illinois. The following day at, uh, at the same convention center, the, there will be held the Chicago Kettlebell Classic All-American Sport Camp through the IKFF. Um, it's three days of learning from some of the best lifters in America. It'll be featuring Ken Blackburn, Mitch Blackburn, John Lesko, uh, Don Storino, and Chris Domlin. Saturday, the 13th of June, the New Jersey AOS Kettlebell Sport Competition will be held at Art of Strength, New Jersey. There are 50 people confirmed on Facebook to attend this event. On Saturday, the 27th of June, the Joint AKA IKSFA IUKL 2015 Third Annual Midwest Regional will be held at Kettlebell Hotspot Athletic Training Center in Spring Arbor, Michigan. There are 51 people confirmed to attend this event uh, on Facebook. On Saturday, the 1st of August, the USA Nationals World Championship Qualifier will be held in Chicago, Illinois. I don't have any information on exactly where that will be held, um, but just keep your eye on it, and, and you should be able to find out soon. On Saturday... Uh, September 19th to Sunday, September 20th, the All-American Championship will be held at the Mr. Olympia in Las Vegas. Uh, That will likely be held in the convention center. On Saturday, the 10th of October, the 2015 Boston Open will be held at the Bay State Athletic Club in Situate, Massachusetts. Also on the 10th of October, the Great Bells of Fire Kettlebell Sport Championship will be held at Pride Conditioning in Charlotte, North Carolina. On Saturday, the 14th of November, the AKA IUKL 2015 Georgia Open will be held at the Greater Atlanta Christian School in Norcross, Georgia. Last but not least, on Saturday, the 5th of December, the Epic Kettlebell Challenge will be held in Tampa, Florida. So that's just a quick recap of what's happening in kettlebell sport this year. Uh, so if you're interested in, interested in attending any of those, make sure you mark them down on your calendars. Now for today's episode, uh, we have uh, Rachel Robertson in to talk a little bit about um, what she does in her Pilates practice and her kinesiology practice, um, as well as her journey uh, learning uh, about kettlebell sport and um, and her experience uh, competing uh, in kettlebell sport. Uh, so just a quick um, introduction uh, for Rachel. Rachel earned her kinesiology degree in 2009 at the University of Western Ontario uh, in London, Ontario. While attending school, she worked part-time at Pilates.com Pilates Studio, where she began full-time work following graduation. She became a member of the Ontario Kinesiology Association in 2009 and has since been recognized by both the College of Kinesiologists of Ontario as well as the British Columbia Association of Kinesiologists. Rachel has an athletic background in figure skating, uh, coaching basketball, and currently has her eyes set on achieving her CMS, her Candidate for Master of Sport rank, at the upcoming West Coast Classic 
sorry, West Coast Kettlebell Classic in San Francisco, California this February at the Ice Chamber Gym. Rachel currently spends most of her time teaching Pilates classes at Fine Balance Pilates and Physiotherapy in Nanaimo, BC, and has been actively providing rehabilitation services to referral clients out of Woodgrove Pines Clinic. For the better part of a decade, Rachel has been using her extensive knowledge of human kinetics and functional anatomy to assist others in overcoming their physical limitations. As Rachel will surely tell you, anyone can do it and you can too. I'd just like to thank you, Rachel, for coming on the show today. And why don't you go ahead and tell our listeners a little bit about uh, your background, who you are, um, and that kind of thing. Um, so I'm a registered kinesiologist. I went to the University of Western Ontario uh, in London, Ontario. At the same time, I did my first Pilates in, uh, certification. I had a roommate who coincidentally came upon an ad and said, are you looking for something to do? So it actually meshed really well. It helped with my studies. So I started um, with Matt Pilates and eventually the studio grew into having reformers too. So I started doing uh, reformer Pilates. And then um, the moment I graduated, actually, the, one of the physiotherapists who attended the studio uh, suggested I started doing motor vehicle accident work. So that's kind of where it stemmed into a lot of my rehab experience. Plus, um, volunteering at various physio clinics uh, during university and stuff. And what's the difference between Matt and Reformer Pilates? Uh, Matt doesn't really use equipment. Like once in a while, we'll add in foam rollers and soft-weighted balls. But the Reformer is a large piece of equipment that uses springs as resistance. So it's, it's still a full body exercises for both of them is just the fact that um, the resistance sometimes can make the exercise more easier because it supports you but at the same time you can change the exercise so that you're pushing against more resistance so it depends on the exercise depends on the person but it's very variable that we can change it for people who are injured but also for athletes so it's a great complement to a lot of um, runners weightlifters and stuff and we've never talked about Pilates on the show before, so could you give um, us a little bit of information on what the uh, theory behind Pilates uh, exercises? So Pilates was designed by Joseph Pilates. Um, he actually grew up in Germany, and he himself grew up with some illnesses, um, but also got hired um, to work with... Um, veterans out of the war so he was in um that it's kind of contradictory whether it was a camp or but this little village where he trained a lot of people he did boxing and gymnastics and he created a lot of his own exercise and then worked in the hospitals and used springs on the beds to create pulleys so the people who were injured who had lost limbs he had designed these pulley systems that allowed um, the various people to build strength again. When he came over to New York, he met his girlfriend or wife, Clara, on the boat, and they opened up a studio in New York City 
which um, they called actually controlology. It wasn't called Pilates back then. And the idea of it um, was to strengthen the full body. There's lots of records of Joseph Pilates even writing articles to the president telling him that we need to get the public to exercise more because it's so important for our health and we'll be better people if we just move. And Pilates kind of starts from the inside out. So we start with the small muscles and we slowly work our way out. So if you can learn to stabilize your pelvis, stabilize your rib cage, and then add in arm and leg movement, you'll have more strength than if we just try to move our legs. And it's, it's kind of interesting sometimes when you teach people and you say, lift your leg or um, you teach them how to properly engage the pelvis, then tell them to lift the leg and it's a completely different exercise. So that's kind of the idea. So more specifically, what's uh, your goal when you train your Pilates clients at the studio? What are you trying to get them to do? Obviously, uh, when it comes to exercise, uh, a holistic approach, you know, trying to get the whole body engaged is kind of universal. It spans uh, multiple modalities. But when you're doing Pilates uh, uh, in this in this modern time, not just speaking about um, kind of uh, not just speaking about Joseph and his theories, but Nowadays, what do you try to get clients to do when you have them either on the mat or on the reformer? Um, With Pilates, we have uh, main principles, and that's kind of where you start. You teach your clients the basic principles, breathing, pelvic stability, rib cage placement, shoulder placement, uh, cervical placement, meaning head and neck placement, and uh, integrating them together. So a lot of the exercises start with that foundation. Um, Someone who presents with a stiff upper body, something as simple as learning to breathe into their lungs laterally, so into the back and the sides of their lungs, can stretch out their mid-thoracic. And then teaching them to properly place their rib cage and their pelvis on the mat can be quite challenging depending on postural issues. So just trying to bring that body awareness in is kind of the foundation, and then we build on that. Okay, so more to the point, Rachel, what what was your first introduction to kettlebells? Um, Actually, you introduced me to kettlebells. Uh, you had gone and taken your courses, and um, I was in my own personal post-rehab kind of situation, and um, was just getting back into weight training. I, I had a car accident where I was rear-ended, and um, surprisingly, the whiplash, uh, you don't understand it until you definitely experience it. And to go from doing regular boot camps and whatnot and weight training to barely being able to hold 10 pounds in your hands was a little bit of a reality check. So, um, I, I started kind of with a basic bodybuilding program, but then learned from taking your classes, uh, the basic kettlebell movements and kind of started to see the trend of, at first I was very nervous, um, pushing a weight over my head and kind of the feeling sensation that you get in very weak muscles can be a little bit overwhelming. Um, but then started to see the changes in my neck and shoulders 
And that was kind of the beginning of me starting to get addicted to kettlebells. So um, you, you spoke about noticing changes in your, in your neck and shoulders. Um, so let's, let's keep going on that. The adaptations that you're getting, obviously you're training, uh, you know, with an injury or with injuries. Um, so what sort of, uh, adaptations did you start to see happen with what sorts of exercises? Um, what did you notice was kind of the, your weakest point that, and, and, and what things have you brought up since then? Um, I think the biggest thing was sometimes when you do injure yourself, like it was a whiplash injury that kind of radiated into my left shoulder and, um, some with, when you start to feel burning in your neck, it's hard to determine when you've been injured, am I making it worse or am I just working really hard and am I doing it properly? So that's kind of where the mental barrier kind of comes in between. But I started to notice um, the time outside of the gym, the time um, between my headaches. My headaches were starting to, pretty much at the time I was living with a headache every single day, taking Tylenol, just trying to cope and get through the day um, and not feel like I was in a fog. So starting to feel the symptoms diminish a little bit. And if they did diminish, which you don't notice until they come back on, you're like, oh my goodness, I have a headache again. And you didn't realize that you had that gap. But those gaps started to get bigger and longer. And really that's what I started to look for. Wasn't the fact that I had a headache again. It was how much time in between what did the, did it last before the next headache came on? Or maybe the intensity of the headaches and the sore neck was diminishing and I was getting longer and longer periods, which was really important for me because who wants to live that way? Um, I don't think anyone really truly wants to. And the other thing was, um, like, like I had said, I was doing a little bit of a bodybuilding program and so working rotator cuff, which translated like into the neck and the shoulder. So creating some stability, mobility through the shoulder and the neck as well, um, kind of reduce the symptoms and just, there was a, a huge muscle weakness after the injury and having to strengthen it was a huge thing. So what sort of impact did kettlebells have on your life at that point then? I mean, obviously, um, it was a, a very small part of your life and it was just, you know, another, uh, training method that you were using that, that added to your recovery process. But When did you start to see that tipping point where kettlebells started to become more important to you? Um, yeah, at first it was definitely a a small portion of it. I think at that time in life, it was kind of, how do I get through my day? I know exercise is important. Um, but I also knew I had kind of at the time had decided, oh, I'm going to go to massage school. And if I want to be a massage therapist, I need to be stronger. So I was trying to experiment with how do I get my body stronger to do a physical job and also um, enjoy my workouts. And it didn't really change until actually we moved and I made the decision that massage therapy wasn't for me. Um, we moved here to Nanaimo and I witnessed my first kettlebell competition and still after that, 
I contemplated. Do is this something I want to try? Well, I remember asking you. I tried to get you to maybe even come out to the Toronto one, um, possibly, and uh, and that was just the furthest thing from from you know a possibility. Uh, not simply because uh, you didn't think you could do it, but there is you know a little bit of apprehension, a little bit of uh, you know obviously it's. It's uh, it's something new, and and with new things comes that that apprehension, that fear. Uh, so, um, yeah, after you you saw your first competition, what was it about that competition that that you know th- the wheels started to turn? Um, what what I thought was absolutely cool was the you had spoken to me about the ice chamber girls and they've got their master of sport and they're really strong, but then seeing them at this competition. And I remember making some random comments like they look like they're bored. They're just holding the weight up there. But then when you physically get in that position, you realize like, no, those girls are in the zone and they're strong because I'm lifting no more near the weight that they were lifting that first time I saw them. And it's cool to see females that strong. I don't believe that um, it gets represented enough. And I think it's an awesome sport that's really starting to show how strong women can be. And I think it's a great example for especially younger females because it can develop, um, I think, good goals for young females. Okay, so you you found some role models in the sport, I think it's safe to say. Um, uh, you saw your first competition, uh, you were really inspired. Um, so, so up to that point, you hadn't participated in a competition yourself. Um, when did you get serious about, like, when were you actually serious about it? When did you like, um, say, okay, there's a competition coming up, I'm going to do this competition. And even when you did the competition, were you really all that serious about it at that point? Um, so my first competition was last year in February, we went to San Francisco for their competition. Um, I was really nervous about it. I don't know if it's a little bit of, um, past experience being a figure skater and the way I used to prepare for figure skating competitions. I very much had, um, the same nervousness going into it. I told everyone we were going to the competition for you and that I was observing. No one knew that I was competing. Um, I was nervous. Like, I didn't even want to speak before the competition. I was shaking um, and I wasn't sure if this really was what, because as much as I loved figure skating, there was that mentality of, um, I was really hard on myself and was I putting myself in this another situation where I was going to be hard on myself. But after the competition, um, I felt so good about it because I struggled near the end of my set and didn't put the bell down and just kept pushing. And I remember people coming up to me at the end and being like, wow, like you struggled at the end, but it showed how strong you were that you just mentally kind of pushed through it. And, uh, I did, and uh, I felt good about it. I think I placed second in the competition. I can't really remember. Um, but it, it definitely 
brought some confidence for me. It gave me goals, which was a huge thing I was lacking. Um, I just didn't have anything to work towards at the at that time. So um, it definitely gave me a lot to work for. We had uh, Victoria coming up in May after that. And I decided that I was going to try the long cycle. I only did the snatch when we were in San Francisco. So I was like, I think I can do a little bit more. So I did both events. Um, now had a goal and a focus and uh, it totally changed my workouts. So I guess that's the main takeaway is that you found a goal, something to work towards. And that was really the game changer. Yeah. I'm, I'm the type of person that I need to have something to achieve. And I think that was a huge game changer. And it's not necessarily about going out and winning every competition, at least for myself. That's not my goal. Uh, my goal is personal best and trying to push myself each time and doing that. Cool. Uh, what's, uh, so how many competitions have you done so far then? Uh, so far three, I did San Francisco, Victoria, and then we went down to Vegas in October. And then my fourth one's coming up next month. And how is Vegas? Was there anything different about that? Did you meet your expectations? Um, what was that experience like? Uh, Vegas, I actually bumped up to the 16. Before that, I had been using the 12. So I went in with the goal of getting rank for long cycle and snatch. But uh, after my first event, the snatch, I... Um, kept thinking another one, another one. And I tore my left hand quite good. I, it, it wouldn't stop bleeding. We, we had to clean it up. We tried super gluing it. We, it just, it wouldn't stop bleeding. You'd touch something and it would break back open. So I just had to look at the long cycle in a different aspect. And I thought, you know what, have fun with it and just do the best you can go for as long as you can doing your right arm and I actually surprised myself I did eight minutes with my right arm and then switched so that's a that's a right arm PR that's a right arm PR and then I switched to the left hand I had two minutes left I finished with 87 reps which is I purposely went with a slower pace because I didn't want to go with my regular pace and wear my right arm out I wanted to be able to kind of last as long as I could um, but I managed to place third, which made me feel really good about single arming it. And, uh, yeah, it was nice to kind of see myself, um, not get down on the fact that it didn't work exactly how I had it out in my head, that I was able to work around the challenge and, uh, just be proud of what I could do. What was going through your head the moment that you were about to switch to your left hand? Who cares if I drop it? I already did eight minutes on the right hand. Just keep going. I, I pretty much had a smile on my face because I couldn't believe I did it. It just, it felt good to know that my right arm's that strong. <laughs> yeah, it was definitely, um, it was impressive uh, to say the least. Everyone was, uh, you know, for uh, the next few hours after that, people were still coming up and, and uh commenting on the eight minutes on the on the one arm there so so that's uh definitely uh um a good example as well of just uh you know smaller goals or or alternate goals you know change your game plan um go for that one arm pr right yep because you don't know what's going to happen no um so let's talk a little bit about role models um 
what sort of role models do you have in the sport? Do you have any? Who who might they be? Um, one girl I absolutely love to watch every single time is Melissa from the Ice Chambers. Um, it, it's it's cool to watch. Uh, she looks so focused, and I just like to study her form and watch how she does it. And there's just a smoothness to it that I do enjoy uh, watching. But um, even um, I can't think of her name right now but I think she's 15 but she's out of the ice chambers too but she got her CMS in Vegas and it was cool Miranda yeah Uh, it was cool to watch her um to be able to move that kind of weight and she has great technique and it it's just really awesome to see other females be able to be that strong and yeah, it's it's great to learn from others to watch them. For those who don't know, Miranda uh, Robiloff, um, she earned her CMS in the long cycle, uh, hitting 100 reps inside of the 10-minute time cap, uh, which we were fortunate enough to witness in Las Vegas in September. Um, that makes her the youngest CMS uh, in the U.S., um, so let's maybe talk a little bit about the evolution of your technique. Um, are there any big revelations looking back now on your technique, things that have changed? Um, <clears throat> probably with with Snatch, there's there's been a lot of changes. Uh, probably when I first started, it was literally get the weight over your head and bring it back down. That was probably the concept behind it. And you know what? That's really like 50% of it. When you're learning... It's just learning how to get it up there in one motion. Yeah. It doesn't matter how pretty it looks, just getting used to the ballistic um, concept of it. it. Yeah, exactly. Um, After that, uh, the snatch has changed quite a bit. Like, uh, I don't know how to describe it, but changed a little bit uh, for an elbow bend coming on the way down. A huge thing was my backswing. Um, I write my goals on my bathroom mirror. Unfortunately, yes, people, when they go into the bathroom and wash their hands, they cannot look in the mirror, Um, but they can read my goals. And number one is perfecting my backswing because that has been a huge thing. I think that's part of the reason I have a a hard time with my grip is I over grip during my backswing and kind of don't have any control of it. So trying to clean that up. And then recently, and, and why'd you start working on that backswing? Because it was kicking me in the bum, <laughs> the the kettlebell. And uh, could could anyone have had anything to do with? Well, you my coach had a huge thing to do. Yes, with I take it. full responsibility for that. <laughs> um, my that coach... goes for all of you out there. <laughs> Work on that backswing. You ask anyone, especially uh, Charlie. I know as well. He really he he does swing snatch uh, probably more often than he does regular snatch. And it's, uh, yeah, you got to work on the depth of your backswing, catching the bell with your hips and, um, and just, uh, your, your grip endurance and that hand position in the backswing. You got to work on all that stuff. Yeah. So the coach had the, had a huge impact on, um, the backswing. And then recently, uh, just changing a little bit more of the downward motion on my snatch so that my elbow comes up higher which at first I was like, this isn't working. But now um, as I get tired, if I accidentally switch back to my old technique, I can feel the difference in the grip. And it's making a huge difference um, 
on my grip endurance, which is good. And I, I'm not tearing my hands as much. Took a little bit, did tear my hands the first few times trying to get used to it. But now that I'm getting comfortable with it, it's a, it's a lot easier. With the long cycle, um, I wouldn't have to say that I've changed too much. Um, long cycle seems to come a little bit more naturally to me, which I wouldn't have said in the beginning. I would have said snatch did, but um, the long cycle has definitely surpassed my snatch, I think. My biggest problem is the rack position. I have a hard time sitting in the rack position, and I would rather just keep moving. Uh, yeah, that's a technique that I, I notice is that um, sometimes if the rest positions are more difficult, uh, i.e. resting in the rack or resting overhead, sometimes it's better just to plow through it and get as many reps in as you can. Otherwise, uh, you do spend time wasting energy in those positions that where you would normally be able to rest, you can't. Um, so is that something that you're actively working on improving? Um, it has been added to my list of goals. That is for sure. Um, Somewhere near the bottom. Well, it's, it's, <laughs> it's more of a newer list addition to the goals. Um, in a way, I have been working on it. Uh, I find it challenging. Um, I think partially body structure. I do believe it's body structure. When I try to get into those rack positions, I'm having a hard time mentally wrapping around, well, how am I going to put my body in that position? Because it makes my arm upright. And uh, it, it's very fatiguing um, to get into that position awkward. And it's going to take a lot of work for sure. So there are there any direct um, differences between the two, uh, either technique or form wise, where you know as a Pilates structure, if you saw someone say in the rack position, um, and you knew nothing about kettlebells at the time, you know what would be going through your head? Are there any situations like that, or, or uh, things you had to wrap your head around, kind of getting into the sport where? You know, in this situation, it's okay to, you know, position yourself this way or that kind of thing. Um, there's not, there's nothing that's really stood out other than when some people do their rack position, the lean they have in their spine sometimes astonishes me. One, that they have the flexibility to do that. Like it literally looks like they're back bending and do you want all this heavy weight on your chest as you're in a back bend? Um, I could see myself wondering, but at the same time, uh, in kick your stabilizers and it's a good strengthening if you have the right technique. Now, someone who came off the street and picked up two orange kettlebells, put them on their chest and leaned back, I would probably scream. But um, for someone who has been regularly practicing the sport and they've got a lean like that, um, I had, I did have to learn to accept it, but I get it at the same time. It depends on like other concepts of their body. Do Can they get their elbows into their hips or do, are they required to lean back a little bit more and rest the bells on their chest and stuff? Yeah, I think that's, well, that, yeah, that's really the point is that um, you always want to strive for the position of elbow in the hip crest because you want to be be able to transfer that load um, into the hips, down the legs, into the floor and not have to support it with the spine. So that gives you that um, 
that freedom to position the spine around the load as opposed to trying to support the load with your spine. Um, but then you'll have those people who A, either haven't been doing it as long or B, just don't have the leverages and the body type for it where they're going to have to be a bit higher up on the chest. They're going to have to use a little bit more support from the spine. Um, and then they may put themselves in those positions where they're, they're really leaning back, putting a lot of pressure on their, on their vertebral segments. And, um, and they might eventually see some, some issues with that. But yeah, if you look at, um, a lot of Russians who've been doing it for a long time and there are going to be, I, I don't know what the population statistics are, but there are definitely some Russians out there who've never lifted kettlebells before. So it's not like they're all great at it. Some are not as good at it as others. And definitely the champions are going to be the ones who are the best at it and have the best genetics for it, the, the best leverages, the best, um, you know, uh, 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 body types for it. So, <clears throat> yeah, I mean, that's, uh, that's always going to be the goal to get those elbows in the hip crest. Um, what about, uh, when you talk to your clients about, uh, I mean, uh, you know, you might be explaining kettlebell sport to one of your Pilates clients or one of your personal training clients, and you'll explain what the snatch is and exactly what you do in the snatch. Okay. I take this heavy weight from the floor and I take it overhead in one motion, and they're like, oh my God, doesn't that hurt your shoulder? I've actually never gotten that. Um, they all go, well, why would you want to do that for 10 minutes, is usually the response. Because um, we'd rather not cycle for 60. Um, but I, to, um, yeah, no, no one has ever asked me, does that not hurt your shoulder? Uh, but I have told people I truly believe that it has made my shoulder and neck stronger. And I do think, um, that is part of the reason why I have recovered to the way I have recovered. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, I think there's a, there's a, a dev, and we talked about it. There's a steep learning curve, um, with that snatch and realistically, um, the shoulder plays a very small role throughout the transitional phase of a snatch exercise. Um, the only time where your shoulder is going to be doing much of anything is in the hang and overhead. Mm -hmm. Everything that happens in between is a, uh, is, is, um, a situation where the bell is in motion and you need to position yourself around the movement of the bell. So you really shouldn't be, um, I mean, there'll be some tension there, but, uh, it's not like you're actively trying to lift the bell when that's happening exactly yeah so when we get to that overhead position obviously your first thought is going to be you know keeping your shoulder blade packed and keeping that shoulder stable which um, for a lot of people going overhead uh either they don't think about it or when you do a strict press sometimes it's harder to position the shoulder blade uh correctly as you're pressing up um whereas with the snatch your shoulder blade can uh, ambulate freely, and once you lock it up in that overhead position, then you can you can easily slide that shoulder blade down into the correct position and anchor it where it needs to be. Um, so I think that it's it's much more beneficial doing that as a shoulder exercise, just learning those fundamentals like shoulder stability, as opposed to doing a press where a press you know. If you've never done ballistic exercises before, you might think that oh the right progression should be press and then snatch. Um, and there's, and that may be true, 
But um, I mean, I don't think there's any right or wrong about that. But um, but uh, obviously, you know, you should always be working on you know making sure your rotator cuff is strong, doing your rotator cuff exercises, things like that. But um, with the kettlebell work, we definitely emphasize position and uh, and locking down those starting positions and those finishing positions. And everything that happens in between is kind of subject for discussion and, uh, and uh, is um, really just differences in mild differences in technique. And basically, if you hit your positions correctly, uh, it's assumed that you're doing the exercise right. Because um, otherwise, if you don't, then you won't land in that position uh, as well as the next person. So, um, is there any uh, favorite gear that you use, or uh, when you're training, what what uh, what are staples in your your training gear? Um, you know, for, for example, chalk, wrist guards. Uh, is there a specific attire that you prefer to wear that you feel uh, helps you move the best? Uh, what about shoes, that kind of thing? Um, <clears throat> well, I have my kettle guards, and no one allow- is allowed to touch my kettle guards. Um, <laughs> And this might gross some people out, but uh, they only get washed so often because if I have good training sweat on it, then they'll be good in competition. It's kind of one of my superstitious things, um, kind of comes from my figure skating background. Um, then I, of course, chalk. I do like to chalk my bell, um, partially because I'm a palm sweater, especially when I get nervous the the two things that go are my palms are sweating and my legs shake like crazy. Um, I've got lifting shoes, just regular uh, power lifting shoes from Adidas. And um, I always wear a headband, mainly because I have bangs and I just don't want my bangs going in my face when I'm going. I don't want my hair flinging all over the place because it can drive me insane. Um, but yeah, other than that, just shorts and a t-shirt and you're good to go. Okay, so we're going to wrap it up. Rachel, what's your next competition? What are your goals heading in? And, um, you know, where are you sitting at right now with your uh, training? And and uh, how are you going to pursue training leading into the competition? Um, so next competition is the first week of February. I believe it's February 7th, and it's in San Francisco. I think I'm just going to do the long cycle uh, this competition. Uh, so... Um, I didn't get rank in Vegas. So that was my goal for San Francisco is to get my rank with the 16 kg. Um, so we did a mon competition actually, uh, this morning with a bunch of clients and, uh, I'm sitting at one Oh five repetitions. So I feel comfortable as long as I can keep that pace, I'll be able to get my rank for this one. And then I'm kind of planning ahead and, um, trying to prepare to attempt my CMS in July with the long cycle. Um, and that's, that's my next goal. So this one's kind of just a fun one. Um, but my long-term goal is to get CMS by the end of 2015 for long cycle and snatch. And, uh, what, uh, what are you doing for your training to, uh, to make sure that you're on track for hitting your numbers in February? Um, Once in a while, I do like to do kind of mock competitions, uh, which we did one this morning, which made me feel really comfortable with the long cycle. Uh, Made me feel like I need some work on the snatch. Uh, 
my left shoulder is not as strong as my right. And uh, with the change in the technique, I'm definitely noticing a little bit um, uh, fatigue going on in the left shoulder. So I need to build some some endurance with the snatch. Um, but at the same time, I haven't been focusing on it as much, but I need to because I plan to do it again in July. Uh, I've been given programs. So there's four different programs. Uh, there's a laddering, there's, um, kind of grip endurance, like each week, the amount of time you spend per hand increases. Um, some of them is kind of pace work, like do your regular competition pace on one hand and then sprint on the other hand. And, uh, the other one, you actually use a lighter weight and, um, work on repetitions and endurance, with that arm. So, uh, yeah, there, there's a few different programs that I'm kind of trying to put into my regular workouts. I also do other lifting, like some deadlifts and squats and, um, bench presses and stuff to complement and just to have full body strength. Uh, and, uh, yeah, combining that and, uh, just checking in once in a while, making sure I'm hitting my reps. And uh, what sort of um, things would you recommend to uh, someone else who might be heading to the San Francisco competition in February? Um, you know, if they're starting out, what sort of things do you think that maybe they should focus on more um, than maybe other aspects just so they can make sure that they hit the numbers they want to hit and, and come out of that competition feeling like uh, they met their expectations? I... Uh... I think even though it's a competition, I think the biggest thing for especially newbies is to not compare yourself to everyone else, but to compare yourself to yourself. So um, if in practice you can do 120 snatches, that is your goal for competition. Um, Or maybe a little bit higher, challenge yourself. But I'm the type of person that if you can do it in practice, you can do it on the competition stage where some people like to challenge themselves. I prepare to present exactly what I've practiced for. So in practice, I challenge myself each time each week. I write down exactly how many repetitions I have and I try and beat it and push myself a little bit harder, but it's always for my personal best and to improve myself Um, And it just gives me the right mentality to, I think, um, not put as much pressure as if I were to be like, I have to win this competition. I have to get number one that you don't know what you're going up against. So I think it just prepares myself a little bit more mentally to think about my own personal best. Um, Also just kind of... um, practicing your technique the only way you can improve is to keep improving your skill set so having practices where you specifically focus on your backswing um, practices where you specifically focus on how you come down and out of your snatch or your jerk Um, practicing those kinds of things will only better prepare you for your competition because then when you get up there and you're nervous and 
you can sit up there and you can recite exactly what you need to do. And that's what I, I always try and practice is one thing I will say to myself, use your legs, use your legs, because I can get really stiff in my knees and start to pull on the bell. So I say little things when I'm in competition to keep my technique on on par and I think that's that will benefit other people if they just remind themselves of their little cues that keep them in line. And uh, for our listeners who might be going to the competition in uh, San Francisco at the Ice Chamber in um, February, uh, what sort of uh, what advice might you have to give them about um, things they might want to bring and uh, uh, you know accommodations and travel because that might be tricky for some. I know it was for us. Uh, things to I, I think research uh, how to get there. If you're not driving, research the transit. That was a little confusing because you cross the board the the bridge and it's a separate transit system which means your transit pass doesn't work uh, and you have to pay, I think we had to pay subway fees or something. Um, accommodations. Well, so, so how should they get there then? What do you recommend? Um, well, it depends on where you're staying and what your focus of your trip is. Like if you're staying downtown, it probably the easiest was transit because we didn't have to worry about parking for a vehicle. If you're in an area where parking's not an issue, which I don't know if that really exists in San Francisco. They could take a bus there, right? Yes, over the bridge. Yeah, there's there's like a, a main terminal where basically all the buses go downtown. Um, and then uh, you take it over the bridge. Um, and it leads you to about a five-minute uh, kind of walk away or so. Five, seven, maybe ten-minute walk away. Um, but then you can't really get back on it to get back home, right? Right. It actually, that brought us closer where when you take the BART, it was about a 15 minute walk because you had to go over the bridge, over the highway and then walk over to, but it wasn't, we got legs. It wasn't a problem. Like, uh, no, and I had my knife, so I think we were good. <laughs> and, uh, what's going to be in your, uh, in your duffel bag? My duffel bag? Um, quest bars? No. <laughs> we don't have um, any left. You ate them all. Yeah, that's true. Um, I usually have my guards and my shoes. Um, we always take a camera. And um, food. Actually, that's a good point. You can set up your camera as long as it doesn't interfere with the judge's ability to um, focus on the athlete that they're, they're counting reps on. Um, so you can set up your camera on a tripod, like right beside, uh, uh, the table that, um, you know, one of the judges might be sitting at, just make sure it's not in their way. It doesn't interfere with what they're doing. Um, and, uh, it's always a good idea to, to take video, um, straight on of, uh, of your athletes because those can be useful in the future for, um, uh, long distance training or certifications or stuff like that. They like to have that front on view, um, and that sort of thing. Uh, and just for, you know, your records, it's good to have those video records of, uh, of what you can do and, and to, and to rewatch it and, and kind of, uh, pick apart your technique so that you can, you can work on that. 
Uh, what else uh, were you going to bring? Food. <laughs> it's a long day. Um, it's a good day, but it's a long day. Uh, there's men and female, and there's three different events, and one of them is a biathlon, so it has two events to itself. So uh, you're sitting there for quite a while, so being able to be prepared and on top of your nutrition is important. Well, food for the athletes wasn't uh, no, it was huge, great. It wasn't a huge issue because they had um, they did have some uh, you know kind of sporty snacks um, in the little back uh, 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 athletes area, athletes only area. But they also had catering. Mm-hmm. Yes, they did. But I, I, I'm also one of those people that are very nervous and shy in a new environment. And I totally didn't go near any of that stuff. I literally sat in my chair and didn't move. I was so nervous. It was my first competition. So I only went in the back room when it was my time to be in the back room and didn't really explore and didn't really even know there was food until the end of the day. And uh, I might have, maybe you told me maybe around lunch and because we had packed salads and stuff. But yeah, I... Uh, I didn't really explore that area. Did did uh, did you partake in some of the uh, Russian post workout uh, drinks? Uh, the vodka shots, <laughs> or was it tequila? <laughs> it was one or the other. So, but someone was handing them out with uh, fervor. They they were handed out, and I definitely had one. Might as well celebrate uh, a good achievement. So can't complain. <laughs> And uh, what was our survival strategy um, in terms of food on the way out there? Uh, obviously, we've got travel time heading to the uh, airport and then, you know, on the plane and then uh, uh, the, the time spent between, you know, switching planes. Um, what was our uh, kind of food strategy? Um, well, we, we tend to pre-make a lot of our food for the day and as long as everything goes as planned, we have enough food for our first day and sometimes the second day. So it's not too much of an issue. So protein bars, we make home make our own protein bars usually. Um, and then more like protein bakes. Yeah. And, um, had a combination of, I can't remember exactly what we ate we at that time, stuffed, but we had stuffed peppers. Oh, okay. So we had stuffed peppers and I don't think we did meatballs. Did we? Uh, not sure but we had a variety of food but it was exactly to our regular eating habits like we had breakfast before we went out the door we had our morning snack our midday meal or afternoon snack and our evening snack no problem and I do think we had food including for the next day so when we got to the hotel because we got there late it wasn't an issue in the morning we we went out and had breakfast the next day and kind of explored a little bit but still had food left over for lunch and there was no problem. And then by that time we were able to find a grocery store and be able to get stuff that we needed while we were in town. Like, you know, $2 wine. <laughs> At Trader Joe's. Yeah. The price That's of alcohol boggles my mind. It's quite cheaper in, uh, in, uh, the States. That's for sure. Uh, yeah, so I think that's uh, that's it. Rachel, I just want to thank you again for joining us on the show. Um, I'm sure that all of our listeners are wishing you the best of luck for the upcoming co- upcoming competition in February. Thank you. And uh, you better all be wishing me luck as well because I will be participating too. And um, yeah, I'm sure we'll have you back on. We'll talk about some, some more topics in the future. But uh, until then, everyone out there, keep lifting hard and... Uh, 
I got nothing. <laughs> <laughs> and happy new year. <laughs>